I just got back from vacation. It was so long. Longest I've been out of the city since I got to the city. Wow. Which was nine years ago. Can you believe that? It was not nine years ago. (laughs) (laughs) It was not nine years ago. We have two lines here that you wrote down for follow-up. There is one line that is not included in there that we need to follow up on, which I think you're going to be pleasantly surprised at my preparation for. Are you ready? Yes, I'm excited. So I hope that you didn't spoil yourself from last time like I asked you to. But what we were going to do was... Oh, yeah. Oh, now you remember. (laughs) Now I remember. I have a lineup of white guys from which you need to pick out Christopher Nolan. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So I have two versions of my image, one with labels, one without. So I am first going to send you the one without, and we'll see what you can do. And then I'll send you the one with the labels. We'll have them both in the show notes labeled as one with or without names. So you can try to follow along. Are you ready? Don't cheat. Yeah, I'm ready. Don't cheat. Did you, did you look him up in the meantime? No, I didn't. Okay, excellent. Don't worry. Here he comes. All right. Now, before you make a choice for listeners who will not be following along, could you maybe try to give a description of the four men that you are looking at? Left to right, perhaps. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, okay. <laughs> Physic, like just pure description or like kind of a, a spiritual analysis of do, the vibe both. I get? B- okay. Brief, but both. Brief? Okay. So the first one on the far left is a disheveled young man who may not be as young as he seems. Hmm. Um, he, he has some sort of insignia on his breast pocket. I'm curious as to why he's wearing also these like military fatigue looking things. But I do not think that this man is Christopher Nolan. Uh, okay. the, the the next, maybe I shouldn't say that. I'll just give a description of all of them. The second person okay. is uh, somewhere in between James Murphy and Kenneth Branagh. Just looks like your average mm, late 50s white guy, I guess. Uh, <laughs> Okay. <laughs> uh, the the third gentleman is a gentleman. Uh, he has a, a well trimmed, a true gentleman, a well trimmed mustache and beard. He's in front of some sort of art. Makes me think he's important and perhaps rich. The sweater he's wearing is a very um, looks very soft. If that is a sweater, I imagine this is a. He has a deep, almost gravelly voice that mm-hmm. can put you to sleep instantly. And the fourth guy just looks i have no way to describe him other than he looks perhaps the most average a person can look all right he's got like stubble looks like he hasn't shaved in a few days he's got yeah wearing a very plain shirt that's how i would describe that gentleman and that's our lineup that's our lineup so now tell me which one is christopher nolan and why are the other ones not christopher nolan Okay, so maybe I'll start backwards and work my way up. Dude on the left is definitely not Christopher Nolan because he's too young. Or he looks too young. And he could looks it not too be like a picture of young Christopher Nolan? It could be, but he looks a bit too like uh, disheveled and too artsy. Dude on the far right mm-hmm. would have been my choice, mm-hmm. was my second choice. I don't know. It's just something about his face tells me that's not Christopher Nolan. <laughs> okay. And third dude definitely isn't. He's too good looking. <laughs> Sorry, Chris, but so my guess is it's the second dude. 
dude in the lineup? Well, let me send you the answer key. Okay. Yes! Spot on. <laughs> oh, yes. Very nice. Oh, so, that's Pierce Brosnan. That is Pierce Brosnan. He looks, I would have never guessed that. He Pierce looks Brosnan. so good. Yeah. For clarification, oh, the dude, third dude in, third, third person in the lineup is Pierce Brosnan, which is mind boggling to me. Yeah. I mean, he, I guess I, I'm not surprised in that he's the most handsome one in the lineup, and Pierce Brosnan is a very handsome dude. Oh, yeah. He's aged very well. He has aged very well. He looks good with a beard. He does. Uh, he was standing. This picture is from a, a GQ interview of him where he's standing surrounded by a bunch of art that I believe he's painted. And wow, he just he's just killing it. Look at him. Look at that look sweater. At that look. look at the beard, the hair. It's all it's all working. So that's Pierce. Can we get a full picture of that. Yeah. I'll, at some point in the show notes. Definitely. Definitely. There's another great one, actually, that I can I can send you, which is of him outside standing up like against the column. Same outfit. Ooh. Very nice full shot. He, mm-hmm. He's just looking dashing. Oh, lovely. So next, moving on, on the far right, Stellan Skarsgård. Do you recognize yeah. that name? Yeah. Um, I know that they're like a family of actors, right? Yep. I know yep. one of them is going to be playing the Baron Harkonnen in Dune. Oh, the, really? The new Dune movie, yeah. I don't know which which Skarsgård is going to be in Dune, though. I don't think it's this one. It might be this one, but he looks a bit too young. Well, this is a, a picture of him when he was young. He's much older now. Oh, so maybe it is that. Maybe that is him. So Stellan Skarsgård is, you might know him most from Goodwill Hunting. He's the professor. You know, I haven't actually seen that movie. Well, that's a damn shame. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, it is him. He is, uh, Stellan will be playing uh, the Baron Harkonnen in uh, Dune 2020. Here comes the image of Pierce standing up. Oh, sick. Wait, before we go to that, what, who, Michael Hutchinson, who is that? Oh, I'm sorry. I already pressed send. <gasps> wow. Ah, he looks like he is fresh out of chopping some wood, freshly showered, but still smelling like wood. Look at that sweater. Look at that sweater. Wow, he looks great. Yeah. He looks very different. That's so interesting. I mean, I, I always just picture Bond, him as Bond in I my know. head. I, I think he looks better here. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. And, and not that he was a bad looking Bond. No, he was not. I mean, the cheesiness of those movies, which is part of their charm, kind of influences, I think, the the way you view him. Mm. Um, but definitely looks great. Yeah. So, yeah, Michael Michael Hutchins, or however you pronounce his name, he is the, or was, the lead singer of In Excess. Wow. <laughs> okay. That explains, I guess, the garb. Yeah. I thought it was a little strange. I was getting a little bit of, like, Welcome to the Black Parade, My Chemical Romance vibes. Oh, no, no, no. This is about 25 years before that. Yeah. And I was like, that's definitely not Gerard. What's his name? Gerard Butler. Gerard, Gerard Butler. Yeah. I was like, that's definitely not Gerard Butler, but I'm getting Gerard Butler emo vibes. Yeah, no. Interesting. Okay. Dude, Gerard, Gerard <laughs> wait a minute. Gerard Butler is an actor, for, is the actor from 300. We're thinking of Gerard oh, Way. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. Whoops. Sorry. You know, it's funny you brought up Michael Hutchinson because yet another strange coincidental follow-up bit is the similarity between Need You Tonight by NXS and Break My Heart by Dua Lipa. Yes. Very similar to Very similar. Need You Tonight by NXS. Though both spectacular. Yeah, great songs. Oh my God, great songs. You know, there's another similarity with that song. that because So the first time I heard that record, we were at like, I was hanging out with my girlfriend's family, we were hanging out by the pool and we listened to that record like four times in a row. Every time we got to break my heart, there's this like part in the, 
I guess, the pre-chorus, where she sings this melody, which I'm not going to sing for copyright reasons, but you can go check out the song. <laughs> I recommend it. Great song. And the melody, we were like, man, that melody sounds familiar. Like, where is that from? Like, we're all trying to figure it out. We spent the whole day, like, thinking about this. And then this that night, I was like, all right, I'm going to cheat. So I Googled it. What song does Break My Heart by Dua Lipa sound like? Or something like that. And I stumbled across a Reddit thread, and someone's like, oh, it sounds like BYOB by System of a Down. Which, like, <laughs> was not what I was expecting, hmm. um, to be honest, that a 2020 pop song would sound like the early aughts pop metal classic uh, BYOB. But there is a similarity in the melodic aspect of the chorus from BYOB and the pre-chorus from Break My Heart. I don't actually know that song. I will have to listen to it. You might recognize it. It's very much very of its time. All right. So that was uh, the very exciting reveal for the (laughs) Christopher Nolan follow-up. I hope you appreciate my Photoshop efforts. I think you did an excellent job. Thank you. Thank you very much. Very well done. So we, we discussed last week this idea of like luxury products and mm-hmm. if they really are better than standard products and comparing those two and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So I came across at the store the other day unbleached paper towels, which are <laughs> paper towels that aren't bleached white by, which is I didn't even know that they were bleached in the first place. I guess it makes sense. I didn't know either, but that sounds so funny. I know. It's, it's interesting, but they're so expensive. I mean, one roll was like $6 or something. The unbleached? The unbleached, yeah. The brand that I saw was the seventh generation brand, which is a good brand. A little on the pricey side, but I was like $6 for one roll, Jesus. And then I, you know, I was looking at the the, uh, standard brands, like a bounty brand or something like that, and it would be like $1.99 for a roll of paper towels. I'm like, okay, well, I know that there's a difference in paper towel prices between various brands, but I did some research on unbleached paper towels because I was like, what actually is that? You know, what 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 really are they? And turns out they're cheaper to manufacture than bleached paper towels. So you would think they would be cheaper, but for some reason this unbleached paper towel roll was like twice the price of the supposedly more expensive to manufacture edition of the product. And I just thought that was super weird. So I sent you the links to the same brand, which I think it's the same amount i can't tell the way the article is or the way the the title of the amazon listing is phrased makes it very um confusing to deduce exactly how many is in each pack but the price difference seems to be the same i don't know what do you think what do you think of this in general first of all the links you sent me one of them was for paper towels the other one's for toilet paper ah fuck <laughs> okay <laughs> so Wait, okay 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 let me, <laughs> sorry sorry let me let me look let me look let me let me refine it so what we're looking at here is a six count of unbleached paper towels, which are supposedly cheaper to manufacture, for $18. Six for six. However, if I go to the seventh generation paper towel, 100% recycled player paper, two-ply six-count pack of four, which is 24 rolls of paper towel of supposedly the same um, volume, is $51. So if I do my math here, 50, $51 for 24 rolls, that gives us $2 per roll, as opposed to uh, $18 for six rolls gives us $3. So for some reason, the cheaper to manufacture product is more expensive than the 
more expensive to manufacture product. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was just so weird because it's like, oh, you get these natural, natural paper towels, which are just the prices raised purely, it seems, and I could be wrong about this, but it seems that the price is just higher for the sake of, so they could, you know, they put, oh, it's natural on the box. And it's like, oh, you, I don't know. What do you, th- what do you think of that? I, I, I'm surprised that it is the lower cost to manufacture one that they sell at a more expensive price rather than trying to sell it even cheaper than the other one. I guess in this case, the, the color is not all that different. So it's not like it's significantly more or less useful mm-hmm. in, in terms of like its function. Mm-hmm. There's an example that I remember from a class I took in college that I don't know if you and I have talked about before, but that's, that's fairly similar to this. Okay, We had to do some sort of case study report at one point in a marketing class about a brand that was thinking of launching a luxury toilet paper. Okay, this sounds familiar. The defining characteristic of this luxury toilet paper was that the toilet paper was going to be black. What? <laughs> That's what we all that thought. That sounds like so, useless. So, yep. So he was like <laughs> he was like the professor was like, "Yeah, so this is this is the case. You know, you got to do your whole little marketing essay saying like, you know, the pros and cons kind of thing of like all the analysis on what the what the market would be for this thing and sort of like things like that. And so when we handed our papers and we had like a class discussion about it, the main point that was brought up was like, at a certain point, it doesn't really matter if it's luxurious or not, if it doesn't still perform the, the function that it's intended to perform. And so in this case, we were kind of arguing to the professor. We were like, well, dude, it doesn't really matter how much you're going to market this. Like black toilet paper functionally is worse than your standard white toilet paper. And he's like, what do you, what do you mean? And we were just like, um, we kind of just had to say, dude, if you're wiping shit off your ass with this black toilet paper, it's going to be less visible if, when you're going to check it than yeah. <laughs> if you're using the white toilet paper. And he, then the guy just goes, he's like, oh, well, not everybody checks. And we were just like, oh, what? <laughs> I took that to mean I, we were like, buddy, are you telling us you don't check? <laughs> and he was just like, oh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, you know. I'm just saying, not everyone checks. And we're like, what What do you mean? So I was just, I was perplexed. And so that kind of reminds me of this, where in that case, I would say absolutely less functional, yet much more expensive because of luxury. And the packaging was nice and luxurious and everything, and that looked fine and, and whatnot. Yeah. But I find that I found that ridiculous. And that was like solely playing off that thing that we were talking about last time, which was like, perceived value even though the function might be the same and or worse yeah you know it's interesting this brings up another point i mean not to get gross but you know the classic image of luxury is like a golden bathroom or one of the classic images of luxury is like a golden toilet Mm -hmm. right you know that i'm not I, i guess in my mind that's a stereotype for extreme wealth is to have a golden toilet i don't think i've ever seen a golden toilet ridiculous not even not even like a picture of one really Okay, well, I'll, I'll send you a picture of one, but um, it got me. It got me thinking. It's similar to the black toilet paper in that, with a golden toilet, you can't accurately assess the the color of your um, urine properly. To put, mm. to put it frankly, right? Because the toilet itself is gonna it's gonna make the the water look look gold, True. golden. True, you know, it's gonna make the give the water a certain tint that you can't know. You know, what if there's an issue. What if you're, too, you know, dehydrated, or uh, you know, the 
you have a kidney problem or something, and you early identifying signs of that would be the color of your pee. Um, and I feel like the golden toilet somewhat hinders your ability to do that. I don't know if that's too extreme, but... No, I think you nailed it. <laughs> On to something, something, just something a little bit more uh, substantial. So we talked about uh, last time, we talked about, in the very beginning of the episode, about how we talked about, we, the example I gave was choosing to, being hesitant about buying, for example, in the case we use as a new pair of headphone fluffers for $20. Being like, oh, that's a little expensive. I don't know if I want to buy. That's, you know, for just some pieces mm. of foam. Which, by the way, let but, me just point out to the audience, I am now wearing those new headphone fluffers <laughs> that he recommended in the last episode. And boy, are they nice. I am comfortable <laughs> as hell. Continue. Um, and we, I compare that to, you know, you would be hesitant to make that decision. But at the same time, you would not be hesitant to buy, spend $20 on, you know, Indian food, which I do all the time to my, you know, to my taste buds pleasure and my wallet's displeasure. But it brought up a point. So I was, I was talking to, I was talking to my girlfriend about this and she brought up a point that like that attitude that we described in that little discussion of like placing the value, perhaps devaluing the, the money you spend on food versus the money you spend on a quality of life improvement, like seeing those things very differently um, and being hesitant about spending $20 in one situation but not being hesitant about spending $20 in another situation. She brought that up and suggested that perhaps that's a generational issue and that we as young, relatively broke 20-year-olds, 20-somethings, have a different system of value in terms of what we buy and what we want to spend our money on and what we deem worth spending money on than someone who is perhaps a little bit older she used her dad as an example. He would be—he would make no hesitation in spending twenty dollars to improve the quality of his life. Whereas we kind of like have it. It's a little bit more difficult to to like make that decision and be like, "Oh, I'm going to improve my life every single day by spending this amount of money." And have it be difficult for us to make that decision um, or be hesitant about making that decision. And so I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on that. Is if you think that. This value, and this leads to a larger question, is the value of money or the valuing of the spending of money can perhaps differ between uh, generations. I, I would say I fall somewhere in between where I'm very, very willing to invest in quality purchases that are going to have that life improvement factor to them. Yeah. In theory. I think in practice, I end up maybe taking three days to research what ends up being a $15 phone charger yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that I make sure that I get like the best one that I'm going to have for like, you know, the next five years. Yeah. And so sometimes I get like, I feel like I get in my own head about it where it's like, this is, this is something that I really should have. And if I have the means to, for it, um, or if I've saved up for it or something like that, then it shouldn't be something that is really, a, a something that takes a lot of like mental effort to make a decision on. Yeah, but it still does, I guess, because but I don't I don't exactly know why the the difference for that. So, for example, say you like you said, using the example of food, like if I, if we're going out to dinner with friends or something, maybe we'll each spend I don't know between fifteen and twenty dollars, say per person, mm-hmm. and that's twenty dollars that I spent out eating food when I have food at home and I could have just made something. Yeah. But I did it partially because I wanted to spend time with friends or whoever we were eating with. 
And if I was going to be bent on spending the 20 bucks anyway, I could have spent it on, like we say, something to have that quality of life improvement thing. Mm-hmm. But in practice, that never really happens. Like I'm never home and being like, you know what? I was going to order food tonight, but instead I'm going to buy this new cable. <laughs> like <laughs> that never really ends up happening. It, it, yeah. I've gotten a little bit better about it now where it's like, okay, yeah. I really need this cable. And like this one that I have is broken. I know I could survive with it, but it really wouldn't be a good time. And like, I should just, I just need to do it. But I think as far as a, a generational thing goes, I'm not sure. About, I'm, I don't know enough to say whether or not I think that goes one way or the other. Because I don't yeah. know if, for example, those generations, like, for example, your girlfriend's dad, at our age acted the same in, in the sense of, or, or yeah. do you mean, do you mean yeah. just, by generational, do you mean like these people acted differently when they were our age or these people act differently because of their age now? Someone who's, uh, let's say, you know, 55, their experience as a 25-year-old is very different than our experience. We live in totally different worlds. So I would say um, maybe my answer is both. <laughs> like, <laughs> If it was someone who's like mid-50s or something like that, when they were our age, I would, I, I, again, I have no idea, but I would guess that they would probably act similarly to how we do now because yeah, you know, it's at the start of their careers that I don't think they have as much money on hand for for those kinds of purchases but also i also think i mean maybe i I could be totally wrong we should we should just ask someone but i think it was just also a a factor of like things were less available to you constantly like you didn't have amazon to just shop through any possible thing that you needed and order it on the spot and have it get it in a day or two i feel like it just came up less to have to say oh like i could buy that thing to improve the quality of life but I'm not going to because of uh, whatever reason. Like I think that was yeah. just a scenario that happened less just as a consequence of where like technology was at at the time. Yeah. I mean, you didn't have an option between... I mean, I, I also use like a uh, frying pan or buying a frying pan or whatever as an example. Like you didn't have many options before the internet. <laughs> you know, yeah. you go to the store and you have what's there. I mean, I was ordering a, a new um, like saucepan on Amazon, and then there's like a hundred choices, like literally a hundred choices, perhaps probably more. Um, whereas, you know, 30 years ago, I would have had three, maybe, depending if I lived near Macy's or whatever. Mm. Now that now that we're in this kind of this world where our choices as consumers are virtually endless, we tend to be, I think, a little bit more careful with our decision making when in terms of when it comes to buying something like a phone charger is a perfect example. It's like there are so, so many options at every price point you can think of when buying a phone charger that like, it almost seems silly. Like when you, when you give me the, when you said before, like you spend three days researching the kind of phone charger you're going to buy. Like I would do the same thing, but like thinking about it in, from like a far away perspective, like just from an bird's eye view, like that's crazy <laughs> Like that you could do that much thinking and that much research to buy a very basic, simple utility product. That's crazy. And on top of that, that not only doing the research, but also like waiting for a sale on like a twenty-two dollar item, and the sale would bring it down to like eighteen dollars. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like, yeah, I wait. I waited three weeks for the sale, and I'm finally, I'm finally ready to go. Whereas, like, you know, I, I would go out, say I didn't have like lunch at the office or something like that. I would go out and grab like a twelve-dollar meal or whatever it was. Not even thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. Do you think then that there's a significant percentage of that kind of thinking or decision making? that is just due to paradox of choice and having too many choices? You know, I, the more we talk about it, the more I think that may be the case. You mentioned the thing of like going out with friends, for example. 
that is such an immediate and immediately pleasurable experience. Like you go out and you have fun, like, and you get something out of that right away. And that's awesome. And that's a great feeling, especially hanging out with friends, even eating a meal, like ordering in a meal, like that experience is great. And it's super immediate. You're like, now I don't have to cook. Now I just sit and wait for something to show up at my house. And then I enjoy it. And it's awesome. Whereas with like doing the, like buying the phone charger, you're doing all this research, you know, you're waiting for the sale and then you buy it and you wait for it to show up. And you know, this differs from person to person, but like the pleasure you get out of it isn't like remotely the same, at least in my experience to like a fun night with friends, <laughs> you know, like, well, yeah, I don't think they're comparable, they, but my God, is it fun to open packages? <laughs> Come on. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think I would slightly disagree about that paradox thing because I think that applies, that applies pretty much in every decision. Like for example, you're going to go out with friends mm. or you're going to order food in like you open up any food delivery app and you have like every single possible delivery option at your fingertips. Yeah. You similarly have that, that choice. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure I agree that it's solely, not solely, or even, or, or even a majority based on just having too many, uh, too many choices. Yeah. Hmm. Ever since we had that conversation, I've been thinking about this question a lot, or this issue a lot, thinking about how we are overwhelmed with, with options at every single point in our lives, and how like there is this weird feeling of dissatisfaction almost when choosing something. For example, like ordering food is a perfect example. It's like I order Indian food, but in the back of my mind, I'm like, until it's gotten to my mouth, I'm thinking about like, oh man, I could have gotten that pizza though. And there's this like thing where you're, this is a strange feeling where you're constantly aware of that you made one, you made a decision, but you could have made all these other decisions. You know, when you're, let's say you, you buy the, the phone charger and then, you know, let's say you're browsing the internet for something else. You're browsing for your headphone fluffers. And then you see a suggestion for other phone chargers. And now you're like, oh, did I get the right one? Is this one maybe better? Did I overlook something? You know, and you're like, there's this anxiety of, am I making the right choices? Am I doing, did I make the best decision for me and for my life and all these things? And I think that the paradox of choice creates this kind of like subtle anxiety, at least for me in my experience of like, did I make the right decision? Uh, did I? Am I doing myself a disservice? These things. It's sort of strange that we can't, or at least for me, it feels so hard to just be like content with hmm. a purchase. Sometimes. Can I? Let me give you. It just made me think of one, one point in favor of that, and one point against mm-hmm. that. Okay. The point in favor is uh, there's a there's a book. I believe this example is from a book called Stumbling Upon Happiness by Dan Gilbert. I believe. Mm-hmm. And he talks about a study in that book where there was a class, I think maybe that he taught at, at some university where as part of the class, the students had these like periodic, very large, like nice paintings that they had to do. Mm-hmm. At the end of the semester, the two different class sessions, group A and group B or whatever, were given separate options. One of the groups was given an option to pick one of the things that they painted over the course of the semester and the school would put it in like a really, really nice frame and would send it to them totally free. And once they picked that option, they couldn't change it. Like they were locked into that and they had to, they had to commit to it. The mm-hmm. other group, it was the same thing, but they were given the option to change their selection up to like a week or so. Mm. And then after doing that, they polled all the students a week later to ask them how satisfied they are with their choice. 
wouldn't you guess it, all the students that weren't allowed to pick the decision, weren't allowed to change their decision, were way more satisfied than the ones that were given the option. That doesn't surprise me at all. The point against is less scientific, and that's with me. And <laughs> that is that towards the end of spring, I embarked on a long quest for a keyboard, um, uh, a typing computer keyboard. Mm. Okay. And I probably okay. took maybe between three weeks and a month to settle on one. And I ended wow. up trying three different ones and returning them, trying different things. Yeah. And the last one that I settled with, which I think I've sent you a picture of, is this incredible like split keyboard that's a 60% keyboard that has blank keys, which is super my thing for typing in Dvorak and all that jazz, which, yeah. is, uh, which is another topic. But I'm so, so happy with this keyboard that like mm. when I was doing research, I was like you know on the keyboard subreddits i was watching tons of youtube channels of keyboards i was There's reading all everything subreddit oh yeah like mechanical keyboard subreddit <sighs> oh Oof. my god people <laughs> that that shit's active dude um, that's crazy and there are like tons of youtube channels on this like yeah. researching all the different kinds of switches and everything and i was i was just soaking it all in <laughs> and then after i got it i was like I was so damn happy with this keyboard i'm so satisfied with all my research like i just feel so good about it yeah that now, you know, sometimes the like YouTube algorithm will recommend me something or in in other cases I'm still happen to be subscribed to some of those subreddits and when I when I scroll past those things and see them I'm just like I I don't care at all. I am so beyond mm. satisfied with my purchase mm. that like nothing phases me kind of thing. Yeah. Um e- e- there <sighs> there are times where I'm like, "Oh, you know, that looks kind of cool, but like but nah, like you just you can't touch you can't touch this one." And I'm just so satisfied. I feel the same way about my backpack that I've had for like I don't know, 5 years now or so. Oh, that's a great backpack. Yeah, I just, I have, yeah, yeah, there are other backpacks that look cool, but like, I, I'm just not that interested. I'm very, very happy with it. And I feel the same way with my, with my guitar, one of my guitars, the, the red, uh, Riviera. I think it's such a damn good looking guitar and it feels so good for me to play personally. And I really like the sound of it and I'm just so happy with it. Like if I think about, okay, you know, if I was going to get another instrument or another piece of gear, my last thing on my list would be another guitar. I'm, I'm like, I'm very, very pleased. Like maybe, maybe another bass. Sure. Maybe, maybe some cool pedals. Sure. Maybe, maybe a fancy keyboard. Sure. Maybe, but definitely not a guitar. Like things like that. There are, there are certain like staple items that I own that I'm just, there's like a threshold where I'm just beyond satisfied that I just don't ever think about any alternative. That's interesting. Cause so now that I'm, now that you're saying that for, well, the first thing it makes me think of is that perhaps that that speaks to two things. It speaks to your ability to research a product is a very finely honed skill that I think you have. And I think you have patience enough to be willing to spend that long amount of time researching something. Whereas I feel like for myself, I'm so impatient. I like, I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, I, I get in my head that I want to buy a, like a, I get in my head that I want to buy a new synthesizer. And I'm like, oh, I have money. I'm going to buy a new synthesizer. You know, I, I just, you know, had a good month or whatever. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do I'm it. Gonna do it. Yeah, I'm going to do it. So I like... <laughs> Research for, I don't know. I'm so excited to do it. I research for like two days, maybe. Whoa. Watch like a shit ton of YouTube videos one morning. Get hyped on caffeine while watching the YouTube videos and then like be like, I'm going to get this. Then I like decide what I want to get. Then watch a bunch of other videos to make sure or like research on a bunch of other things to make sure I'm like confident in my decision. And then I just buy it very quickly. I don't do a lot of research on that sort of thing. Damn. I can't imagine. It's, it's like 50, it's like a 50-50 success rate. I mean, especially with things like, I mean, 
when I'm buying like a new saucepan, like I don't give a shit, like whatever. <laughs> it has to work and like not be sticky. You know, things have to not stick to it and it needs to boil my water. That's like all I care about. Whereas, you know, with buying a musical instrument, that's like a totally different, you have a totally different relationship with that thing because you're using it a bunch and all these things. So yeah, so like if I'm buying, like if, like for example, I just bought this new synthesizer uh, called a Plum Butter and I researched for like <laughs> two days maybe about it. Whoa. That's and crazy to me. I know, but because I have a counterexample to that, which is, well, I love the Plum Butter. I mean, it's one of my favorite things that I have right now. And I think I made the decision to buy that one because from watching videos and reading things online, I still didn't really understand what it did. And that to me made it more interesting. And as every time I use it, I've discovered something new about it. And I think that that's really fun. And I'm like happy. I'm, I'm satisfied in my decision for that reason. Um, mm. whereas, it, was this a, a three or four digit purchase? It was a four digit purchase. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. It's handmade. It's made of wood. It's cool. Use banana cables. It's sick. I'll put a, we put a link in the show notes. Banana cables? Banana cables. Have you, what you know banana, banana cables? cables? No. You never heard? I'll send you, I'll send I'm you a link. I'm so excited. Do they look like bananas? Uh, no. I don't know. I, I don't know why they're called banana cables. That is so disappointing. <laughs> well, you can, you can determine for yourself if it looks like a banana cable. I'll send you a picture. Okay. Of a banana cable. They're rather expensive, unfortunately. So this is a banana cable. This is a Pomona brand, I think. Whoa. Wow. Um, tangent aside, well, at the same time, I did, you know, two days of research to decide that I wanted the synthesizer, and I bought it, and I'm very happy with it. There are some other purchases that I've made where I've not been as satisfied about the the product I ended up buying. For example, I bought this module that I thought was interesting for the same reasons. Like I didn't really know what it was doing. It kind of was doing a lot of making a lot of weird sounds. And I was like, oh, this seems cool. Like, let me buy it. So I bought it with not doing that much research on it. And I was very disappointed. Not very disappointed, but I was underwhelmed. I was like, oh, it kind of does like one thing. That's cool, I guess. And so that was an example of where my underplanning sort of kind of bit me in the butt, so to speak. So I'm still shocked. Two days, four-digit purchase? Oh, my God, dude. I would have spent like a, over a month on know, that shit. I know. Yeah, it was a, a rush decision, but I'm very happy with the result of it. I think you were just lucky. I think I was just lucky. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, I, I got my first like real guitar. I put a lot of research into that when I was like 15 or 16, and I'm so happy with that guitar. It's my jazz master with the humbucker and the bridge and then the single coil on the neck. I'm so happy with that guitar. I like have no desire to purchase another like electric guitar except for buying like a baritone because it's a baritone and what I have is not a baritone but I'm like so happy with that guitar feels good yeah it feels good so I see here that you have something about a thief proof wireless charging pad I'm very curious you got to tell <laughs> okay. me about that so I had a thought so you introduced me to the wireless charging pads I mean I, I knew wireless charging existed but I had never considered buying one. I thought they would be expensive. And so, but then you kind of told me about there's this, the brand Anchor makes this wireless charging pad. It's like 10 bucks or something like that. Um, and I just got um, the AirPod Pros, which have the wireless charging capability. So I was like, yeah, why not? Let's buy it. It's 10 bucks is cheap. Nice. I am extremely happy with that purchase. <laughs> it go. is awesome. I leave it by the, I just put it on my bedside table and it's just like, so easy to kind of just like, oh, pop the headphones on there for a few minutes. Pop the phone on there for a few minutes. Awesome. I love it. But it got me thinking, like, 
a big problem we have at the studio is people stealing our iPhone charger cap- charging cables. Mm. So, you know, people ask, oh, can I have the cable? And you give it to them. And they take it because it's, you know, it could be un- an unwilling steal where they're like, I think this is mine. And then they just take it. And now we have no charging cables at the studio, which has been the case several times over the past few months where we just have no cables mm-hmm. to charge our phones at the studio. But this got me thinking, perhaps the wireless charging pad is the thief-proof method because no one is going to be like, is this my wireless charging pad? It's like, no, you didn't <laughs> bring I a wireless charging around? pad that you carry around. Exactly. So I thought, ah, I think it might be the ultimate solution to cable thieves in public spaces or semi-public spaces. That's a pretty good point. I hadn't really thought about that that way. Yeah. I, I completely agree. I mean, when my girlfriend and I travel, we are so in the wireless charging world that I pack the whole shebang. You bring one with you? Oh, not only do we bring one, we bring at least two. Oh my God. <laughs> along with like a four port USB hub that plugs into the wall so that we can not only charge those two, but we can also charge like external batteries and things like that. It's like this whole station and it has its wow. own bag for it. Like we are, we're intense with that. Like all, you know, watch <laughs> chargers, whatever. Like it's all in there and there's a whole station set up with multiple wireless chargers. So you just, you're ready to go. So we, wow. we, Take them with us because it's just once you once you experience that it's just so damn nice. I think you have to clarify for the listeners: you have only wireless charges in your house. Correct? That's correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have I don't know six of them or so, and they're just they're incredible. I it's so nice. So we we travel with them a little bit, but I wouldn't like bring my wireless charger if I'm like going out to lunch or something like that. Like that's crazy. Yeah, you wouldn't bring it to the studio. Right. If I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bring it to a studio either. I think if I was going for that, I would probably just bring an external battery with me if I really yeah. need to. Yeah. But no way that would I bring. Um, it, well, if I was bringing an external battery, I would bring. I probably just bring a cable to plug directly into my phone with it. Yeah. Because a lot of times, like that'll just be in my pocket or something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, it's it's just a it's just a bit inconvenient if it's going to be yeah. on a pad or something. I think yeah. I need a surface to place it on anything like that. So I, I completely yeah. agree. I think that's a that's a great idea. Not only will no one have it, no one will confuse it for their own. Exactly. However, people might be like, "Damn, this shit is nice. I am taking this." <laughs> well, that's just a that's just a mean person. Yeah. Which on on that note, you could. I've seen plenty of people do this. Is like, and actually, I think IKEA now sells furniture that has this, which is that they have the wireless charging pad built into whatever piece of furniture they have. No way, really? Yep. So they have like certain surfaces. For example, on Ikea, they have like a desk that is all wood except for this like little circular bit. Or maybe maybe it is a circular bit of wood, but it's it's like colored differently to signify that, okay, this is where there's a wireless charging pad. Oh, sick. And you can just put it on there and it's flush with the desk and everything. So it's really nice. Wow. So, you know, you guys have a lot of, for example, at, at the studio, you guys have a lot of... Um, areas and stations like your the workbench you guys have up and stuff like that yeah. so yeah. you know it wouldn't be inconceivable for you guys to just drill a little bit around it slot a wireless charger in there like as part of the desk that's not a bad idea that could be cool to have on the like i mean of course you know techs get all up in arms about having phones near gear um for good reason uh, it's because of the frequencies yeah yeah the the rf interference um can get pretty intense but i could totally see that as like the you know, you have on the table that's in between the couch and the, the the engineer's seat or something like that, having like a little station. Because I really feel like, you know, with my experience in the studio, I've been several studios as intern and or uh, employee where the stealing of 
charging cables is perhaps the most annoying kind of gripe that mm. people have with clients coming in. And it's not that the clients steal them on purpose, but it's like people forget their charger and they're like, is there a charger here? They plug in and then re- forgot that they forgot and then just take it with them. That happens all the time. So I think investing in the wireless solution for studios is the best way to make sure that no one walks away with perhaps the cheapest piece of electronics in the entire <laughs> room. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think we're getting to the point where you can, you can reasonably expect that most people's phones would support wireless charging. Yeah. Folks who know us personally know that we have a perhaps a policy when it comes to new albums where when a new album is coming out from an artist we like, we don't listen to the singles for that album in anticipation of the record and wanting to experience the full album for the first time. Of course, there have been exceptions to this. One that always pops into my mind when I think about this is when we listen to Whiteout by Warpaint. Oh my God, what a good song. Yeah, such a great song. But the reason I brought this up is because uh, recently I was on a road trip and we were listening to Bill Callahan, who's like a folk artist for folks who are not familiar. He's an excellent songwriter, has a very lovely voice. He has, if you would like to get into him, I highly recommend he has a record called Dream River, which is just, oh man, it's just so, so many great songs, so many great sounds on there. It's an awesome record. He has a deep, deep discography. But anyway, he released an album this year where he released one track at a time over the course of, I guess it was like one a month or something like that. And I thought that that was really interesting because that would, as a Bill Callahan fan, totally negate my like policy of only listening to the full album and not listening to the singles. But I wanted to get your kind of, because you kind of introduced this idea to me. So I wanted to get your thoughts and your opinion on why you choose to not listen to a single for, not listen to the singles for a record and just kind of like wait for the full album to drop and then listen to the the album. So a few things here. I think this whole policy of like waiting for the album to come out, I think is very, very tied to, for example, the same reasons that I, at least personally, uh, refuse to watch trailers of any kind. Yeah. Teasers of any kind for movies that I am actually interested in seeing. Yeah. Or, you know, that I, that I care about, you know, for example, say I took it to an extreme with, with certain movies recently, like, you know, the most recent star Wars movies or Incredibles two, for example, I mean, and the Star Wars movies is a great kind of supporting theory for that because it like spoiled a major part of the film, which I thought, well, I guess at the time when I saw the trailer for the third one and they have at the end of the trailer, there's like the Palpatine laugh. I was like, what? You're going to tell me that now? Oh, I would have been so surprised if it, I'm watching the movie and I'm like, holy shit, Palpatine. Oh my God. At the, at the very least they like reveal that literally in the first three yeah. seconds of the film. <laughs> yeah. So it yeah. wasn't like a big spoiler, like but a big reveal still, or something. Uh, but I was just, yes. but I didn't know that at the time. So when I watched the trailer, I was so bummed. I was like, "Really? Yeah, I got to feel that." I didn't want to know that. <laughs> I got to feel that. So yeah, exactly. I agree. And with movies like that, I even went to the point of like avoiding looking at the posters and stuff. Like it was, yeah. it was intense. I blocked <laughs> all references to it on the internet across all my devices. Anyway, I go deep with these kinds of things. But yeah, the reason I do them is one because, in the sense of movies, it's like yeah, I don't want anything spoiled for it. And for the same for the same reason for music, I also don't want to necessarily put any extra onus on any one part of either the movie or a record or something like that. Mm. So say, for example, in a movie, if you see the trailer and there's like a scene and you're like, oh my God, that's such a cool looking scene. You're kind of 
in some senses, you might be waiting for that scene while you're watching them film. And so yeah. you might be like, you know, where, where is this thing? I'm getting kind of bored. Like, I know that this other cool bit is still coming up. Let me just like, uh, like check out for a little bit during this. And so I feel like you don't really pay attention to it in the same way. Mm-hmm. Similarly with a, with an album, I think if you put out singles so much of the time, I would say the majority of the time, it's just for kind of like publicity reasons. It's not really because you deliberately are saying these songs stand aside from the rest of the record or these songs are so perfectly capturing of the record's sound and what we want to get across with the record that you could listen to this, these three singles, and you could get the vibe of the entire record in the way that we wanted to get the vibe across. Mm-hmm. I don't really think that's usually the case. I think usually it's we, we live in a more singles era you need to pick singles from your record to release for publicity reasons, and that's it. And so I don't know about all that many artists in particular, but I know that many artists aren't writing the record saying, okay, we have the two singles, let's just like write the rest of the record. Or like as you're writing a thing, being like, this is a single for sure. Maybe sometimes the latter, but yeah. you're never... I don't, maybe there are big like pop records where it's like, okay, we have these killer singles that we know are going to destroy the, the charts and we need to just wrap a record around it. Maybe yeah. that's the case. Yeah. But I think a lot of times it's more you write the record and then later on you're thinking, okay, what what would we want to release as the singles for this? What do we think is going to serve the most yeah. publicity and stuff like that? So I think I think to that front, knowing that that's usually where it's coming from is where I'm I'm thinking, okay, because of that, I now don't want to listen to these songs from this record that is coming out. And for however long, only have these songs to listen to and sort of base my initial emotional feelings on this record around those singles. And so what yeah. ends up happening is, say I either really, really love or really, really hate the singles, that kind of positively or negatively taints the rest of the record emotionally for me when it comes out. Yeah, yeah. It's harder for me to listen to the rest of the record and be able to approach it with so much of a clear mind that's separate from the singles and also be able to see the singles as just part of the record and not as the singles. So that when I'm listening yeah. through the record, I'm not thinking, Oh, like, Oh, here come the singles kind of thing. Mm. And so to that extent, I want to be able to come out the record without any other things influencing me in this, in the sense of like, I want to be able to listen to it and pick out the songs that I personally am most impacted by. Yeah. And not the songs that were by some metric chosen to get the most publicity. So I think the Warpaint record heads up is a perfect example of a lot of these things because for when, for example, like when we listened to Whiteout for the first time, we were so amped on that track. We listened to it. I mean, I I don't know about you, but I listened to it. I don't know how many times before the record actually came out. And I was nervous waiting for the record. I was like, man, I hope the rest of the record is as good as this song is. And I turned out to be turned out to be the case. It's an awesome album. It's one of my favorites, kind of of the past few years. That record still stands out to me and is like near the top of my list. But I can't shake the feeling every time, or rather, I can't unremember when I'm listening to the album and when I get to Whiteout. I can't unremember that song as being the first one I heard. And it kind of I am taken out of the experience for a second when that song first comes on. I don't think I'll ever be able to move past that, especially because the memory of listening to that song for the first time was such a strong memory for me and such a good memory for me. I remember that memory. 
I remember that. I remember that day. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. But like, and but and I think about that every time I listen to the album, which is a good thing, I think, because it like ha- it's a pleasant memory for me. But it's still like I can't place it inside of the album in the same way I can place the other songs, even like uh, new song, which is stylistically the, uh, an outlier on that album, but it still fits into the record better than Whiteout because my experience with Whiteout is so separate from my experience with the record. I was actually thinking about New Song by Warpaint while I was yeah. saying that earlier because that whole thing about you know not sort of psyching yourself out if while you're writing the record, yeah. thinking, oh, this is the single, is actually stemming from a, a Warpaint interview that I read about New Song. Yeah, I was thinking about that too. Where that's sort of how they felt while they were while they were writing that song. Where it's like, okay, we don't want to get ahead of ourselves and say, you know, oh, this is the single. Like we're going to play this at festivals and like people are going to go nuts over this, and not sort of getting ahead of yourself in that sense and being able to stay grounded and and actually finish it well. Yeah, I think there's an there's an interview. I don't know if I'll ever be able to find it because I, I read it so long ago. But it was an interview with Josh Homme from Queens of the Stone Age where he makes the point where he says, you know, when we're it's the interviewer asks something like when you were writing Go With The Flow, where you're like, oh, this is going to be the single. And he's like, we don't like write a song and be like, yeah, this is this is it. This is going to be the hit. Like He's like, we don't think about that. We like finish the record and then from there make the decision of like what's the single going to be. Um, mm. So I think that there's a wide breadth of, <laughs> of ways that artists approach this dilemma, yes. I guess, for lack yes. of a better word. And and when we, we, I mean, we had a similar conversation about this. Like when we were finishing up our band's record and we were deciding like, what are the singles going to be? I mean, there was contention amongst band members with opposing opinions as to what that would be. And I feel like everyone had like a different reasoning for why they wanted to pick those certain songs. And at least for me, a big factor in the decision making, which I could be wrong about this, using this factor as a kind of something that influences my decision. But like, I was like the, the singles we pick need to be the catchiest ones and they need to be the the hardest hitters. And I wasn't really thinking about how representative they were of the record. When I think the single we picked, or at least one of the singles we picked, is very representative of the the record, stylistically speaking. But it wasn't my first choice because I didn't feel like it was, you know, the hardest, most immediate banger. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. But I would say that that disagreement, at least in my opinion is a good reflection on the record that there are so many different ones that you could pick for different reasons that it's like yeah. varied enough that you have that sort of selection. Yeah. And I would imagine other artists have the similar discussions when it comes time to pick the singles. I was going to say when you were telling that Josh Homme story, I wouldn't have been surprised if he was like, maybe, maybe it wouldn't have been him, but it would have been a, a response of like, Oh, when you guys were writing go with the flow, is that a thing? And he's like, no, we weren't writing it thinking, you know, this is going to be a hit. And that's because we only write hits. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to look up I'm going to look up something real quick here. All right, perfect. Okay. So, when I was in school, I took a songwriting class and the teacher of that class invited everyone in the class to a sort of like master class discussion thing with this songwriter/producer named Desmond Child, who's he was more active in the 80s and 90s, but he has quite the impressive discography. Was he the guy that wrote the Ricky Martin song? Yes. Both Cup of Life and Live in La Vida Loca. Excellent bangers. Yeah, excellent bangers. But amongst his other credits are the rather impressive list of, I'll just read from the Wikipedia here, I Was Made for Loving You by Kiss, uh, I Hate Myself for Loving You by Joan Jett and the Blackhearts, You Give Love a Bad Name, 
and Living on a Prayer by Bon Jovi. Well, they're the same song. That makes sense. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and he also wrote their song, Bad Medicine. He also wrote Dude Looks Like a Lady, oh, uh, Angel, What It Takes, and Crazy for Aerosmith. Uh, wow. He wrote Alice Cooper's Poison and then the Ricky Martin songs. I mean, like you can go on his, you could just look on his uh, discography. He's a huge list of tracks that he's, uh, so I went to his masterclass. Well, I was introduced to him through this masterclass. So I was doing some research on him and the Bon Jovi is a good example of this. If you go to the record Slippery When Wet, which is where, uh, living on a, it's the record that living on a prayer and you give love a bad name are on. If you look at the credits, uh, Desmond Child is only credited with one, two, three, four songs of the 10 in the track listing. The other ones are uh, bon jo- John Bon Jovi and Richie Sambora, who are the like main kind of songwriters in Bon Jovi. Similarly, if you go to do, 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 you go to the Aerosmith record, uh, Permanent Vacation, which is where uh, Dude Looks Like a Lady is on, you see that Desmond Child's only written two songs on that record, Dude Looks Like a Lady and Hearts Done Time, which I don't know if that was a as successful of a track, but it got me thinking like, so this dude is at the time, even when these songs were coming out, like he was a known as a successful songwriter. And so based on the, what I'm looking at here, based on the track listing and which songs this guy's credited on, it looks like they like brought him in to write these tracks. And then those are the singles. It's like they brought Uh in a well-known songwriter to a band with two songwriters in it, in both the case of Bon Jovi and Aerosmith. And they had this guy write the songs, and then those songs are the, like, huge singles from the record. And, I mean, of course, I don't know what the um, the decision-making process was between the band and the label, um, and at what point the decision was made as to which songs would be the singles or not. I just find it's really interesting that it's like, this guy was brought in, they wrote these songs, and those two songs are the two biggest singles from the band, in general, arguably. In that case, it's, the evidence seems to be that it's like, all right, we need singles. Let's hire the right the the hit writer. You know, yeah, it's pretty wild that 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 these examples are from so long ago, and that that was the case then. Because I mean, yeah. you did you do have like counterexamples from that time of songwriters coming in. Oh, absolutely. Like, for example, Nile Rodgers was was very well known for coming in and and doing the entire record with someone. Yeah, but that these stand out so blatantly. I think. Wow, I didn't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I, I wouldn't be surprised if let's just going to look for one more example. If I go to the Joan Jett song, yeah, he's only credited on two songs on that Joan Jett record. Wow. Up Your Alley is the Joan Jett record. And Desmond Child wrote, I Hate Myself for Loving You, which is the hit single. And this other song called Little Liar, which was mm-hmm. not as big of a song. Oh, and You Want In, I Want Out. That was another song he wrote on the record. Not as successful, but again, interesting. So I just thought it was kind of worth bringing up as a sort of an example of one other thought I just wanted to throw in there. Yeah. Not just singles in the picking a song from the record sense. Yeah. But I think one other thing that I do my best to refrain from before a record comes out, just because I, I, I there's really, I really just, there's something about listening to a record the whole way through there, you know, the track listing was picked for a reason. They had to pick an order and they chose that order. So yeah. I would hope that they put some thought into it. And a lot of times, like when I find out later what the singles actually were for a record, if I didn't already know, I don't always, I'm always kind of like pleasantly surprised when I think 
maybe those weren't as strong on the record in my opinion and maybe the maybe the songs that i really really love the most are the ones that got the least attention or maybe like the last song or the second to last song that that was not as prominently featured mm. so there there is that and that that is a that is a nice experience and that's kind of partly the, one of the reasons why i do it where it's like i don't I, I, you want them all to be on an equal playing field subconsciously exactly i want to, exactly and subconsciously is the key part and so i think on top of that not only trying to avoid listening to the singles but also trying to avoid music videos oh why is it just because they have this song in the video or is there another reason well no i think even if i'm going to listen like say i'm going to listen to the record and say they it was an artist who i don't know say for whatever reason i'm watching it on youtube and say it's an artist who uploaded the whole record to youtube but for yeah. the for the singles has the music videos on there. Yeah. And, and maybe the, the audio, I will 10 out of 10 times go for the audio and not the music video because mm-hmm. I, and this is actually something that I first heard of or read about from Julian Casablanca's, the singer of the strokes back in an interview, I think like right around the release of their debut album mm-hmm. where he originally did not want to make any music videos for any of the songs on the record. Oh yeah, I think you've told me about this. Yeah, for the for this same reason, and that is that watching a music video and having those visuals or, or some narrative is a narrative that's injected by the artist into the song beyond the song itself, beyond the lyrics and beyond the like sound and the the instruments, the instrumentation. It's it's a, a visual arc, perhaps, or just some some other layer of emotion that's added on top of the song that mm. might sway you to feel one way or the other about the song. And so mm. having that separation from it as well, I think is is important to, to me at least, where the song for me, a lot of times if I listen to a song that is a single and then later on go watch the music video, the emotion that I feel with the song sometimes is in complete disagreement with the vibe of the music video. And that's like really surprising to me. So even when you watch the music video after... Yeah, well, because when I watch the music video after, I always I already have that whatever emotional feeling that song has made me feel. Yeah, and so when I go to watch the music video, sometimes I'm like, wow, I really I just feel so differently about the song that I don't like this video is just weird for me to watch because Mm. I I think about it so differently. Or other times it's like, oh wow, like this is this is so in line with what I thought. This is like a cherry on top in that case. But I wouldn't want it to do the other way around where the the music video somehow pre informs or or maybe real time informs my emotion of the song. So a follow-up question for you on that point is how you feel about looking at album artwork before a record comes out and before you listen to the record. Because for me, at least, album artwork is a huge influence on the way I'm going to like preconceive my notion of what the record's going to sound like. Um, yes. And I, I mean, the, the example I use for this is there's a record, oh, I always forget, I always forget the name of it. So there's a record called Love by a band called Amen Dunes. And the I love the cover. It's such a sick cover. Like the vibe is very interesting. The like the the coloring, it's spooky, it's mysterious. But to my ears, the record sounds nothing like what the album cover looks like. Mm. And I think that that because I saw the album cover first, it made me want to go for the record. But then I was not disappointed, but I was surprised. When I heard the record, I was like, oh, this doesn't sound like what I thought it was going to sound like. So right. what is your thoughts on that? I've had similar experiences where I'm like, wow, this album artwork is incredible. And then I listen to it. And I'm like, wow, that's really not what I wanted. <laughs> so <laughs> I, but I well, think what about like with the strokes, like the new, 
the artwork for their newest album. Which way does it sway for you? I mean, if I can be frank, I think the artwork's strange. It's like weird. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't sound, let me pull it up. Yeah, so I, I saw the the cover to this and I was like, oh wow, is this going to be kind of like a more experimental, like a little bit more avant-garde is it kind of record. But then it doesn't really sound like that at all to me. Um, so I was kind of not disappointed, but like surprised again when I listened to the record. I was like, oh, that artwork doesn't do what I thought it was going to do. Or the record doesn't sound like what I thought it was going to sound like based on the Almar work. Right. Well, okay. So I think this might be sort of the one exception to all this because the album artwork is, for the most part, unless you like really go out of your way, not really something that you can avoid. Yeah. And I think, though, artists are hopefully aware of that sort of thing and pick the album artwork with that in mind or at least sign off on it with that in mind, thinking, okay, this is the image that everyone will associate with this record. And it's not like a music video where it's like, okay, just with this one song, and they're not always going to be watching the music video when they're listening to the song. Yeah. But most of the time when you're listening to a song and you go to like look down to the song, say you want to like check the name and be like, oh my God, which one was this? You're looking at the album cover. And so it's, yeah. just, it's just this unavoidable part of it and yeah like we've said sometimes that can be sometimes that can be good sometimes that can be bad depending on i guess partly how you interpret the album cover and and how it makes you feel but i think that that's that's one that i'll give that i'll sort of like give into where mm-hmm. i will if i can help it i will try to not really look very closely to the album cover at the album cover before i listen to the record yeah but it is something that is there all the time. So there is an influence there. So I, I do let that in because I would hope that it's important enough to the artist that, okay, if they chose this for the album cover, I want to be okay slash consider that something that they think goes hand in hand with the record or that they yeah. are happy enough to associate so strongly with the record. As yeah. similar, similarly with, the, with an album name, for example. Mm. Or, and, and even to a certain extent, I mean... This is something that they can't control so much later, but to a certain extent, also the the band name, I think also so also has an effect yeah. on that. And I was oh, thinking, for sure. we spoke, we were sort of debating recently, maybe last time we spoke about what to call this podcast. Yeah. And when I brought that up to some people, it got me thinking that, like, a podcast name is not really even close to as high stakes as something like a band name, because a band name can really bring in some emotions to how you think about the band, even before you might listen to the music or even after you listen to the music, you think about that name in a certain way. It evokes a certain emotion because you associate it with the, with the music. So for example, a band that has a striking name, even if you don't, if you know, you haven't heard their music, it makes you feel a certain way. Um, So, you know, certain examples that come to mind are like the butthole surfers. You hear that name and you're like, (laughs) I don't, that's, that's hilarious. That's ridiculous. Like, what what is their music going to be about? And so it's like already you're approaching it as like, are these guys just like a, a parody band or like what's going on? Yeah. Whereas you, then you end up associating something like it with you know the first time that I heard the name King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard, I was like, <laughs> okay, that is one of the coolest band names I have ever heard in my life. <laughs> I should probably check this band out. And then you listen to them, and you're like, this is exactly what I thought it was going to be for this band name. And so things like that, I think, are very evoking. Whereas a podcast name, I think is more serves to just be informative is more just like a key Mm. by which you can find that podcast. It's not really, it's not really like something that, Oh my God, like the, the whatever show is making me just, just the title. I'm like, Oh, (laughs) like I'm ready. It's like, no, it's like, like, you know, 
James's talk show or something. It's like, okay, yes, this is this guy's show or whatever. Like yeah. they're they're much much less high stakes in that in that regard. Where the the band name is just a, this permanent thing that may or may not be tied to emotions that that you want to that you want to give them. Mm. I don't know if I necessarily agree with. Maybe I agree in maybe I disagree in a kind of a sideways way with the way with what you say about podcast titles. Like because I feel like the podcast title like. If I'm looking at new podcasts or something, like I'll read the title and then I'll read the description. And a lot of times for me, like, and this could be a very unfair way to kind of make these decisions, <laughs> but like if I read the description of the podcast, if it's about something, and then I read the title and I'm not too interested, and I think the title's like, okay, if I'm like, that's eh, a f- okay title, I guess, like I'm going to be less likely to maybe to check out that podcast. Interesting. That could be my own problem, but I don't know. I, I think there is like something to be said with the podcast title of like, it has to evoke the spirit of the discussion to me, at least. There's that very popular podcast, Stuff You Should Know. Mm. And I love the title of that podcast because it is so casual. It's just like, here's stuff you should know. And then you listen to it and the the spirit and the vibe of the podcast is so casual. It's the one of the most casual, informative podcasts that I've listened to. And I think the title really speaks to that casualness of it so i think that's an example of how the title can be uh evocative of the the content itself i agree and maybe a way that i would append my point (laughs) i thought so hard about that word (laughs) should leave that in (laughs) one thing that i would add to, to what i was saying then is that I think maybe you just have a lot more leniency with a podcast name. Where yes, I think you can mm. you can have it be a positive association to something that the podcast is about or whatever. Yeah. But there's no there's not as much downside where it's like X person's show isn't an uncommon kind of name. And so you're sort of so yeah. used to it where it's like okay, yeah. yeah, maybe a show with a a more fitting name or a more evocative name might be slightly catchier to to bringing someone in if they're just like browsing names. Sure. But I think to I, I try to think up like the podcasts that I enjoy, and a lot of them don't have like the greatest names. Say I don't know, Hello Internet. Sure, that, I mean that, that's a cool name, but d- d- does it does it really say much about it says the show? Nothing. It says nothing about the show. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. So I think I think you sort of get the benefit of the doubt on podcasts. Yeah. Now that I'm thinking about it more, a band name. I mean, the name of a band is not the same thing as the name of a record and i would associate the name of a record and the title of a podcast as being sort of closer in mm. their function because a band name is a, a band is a persona or an artist name a pseudonym is a persona in a way that a podcast title is a categorical a creative categorical tag for you know lack of a better term so that's fundamentally different in my mind to okay. the name of a band i think the name of a record would be a, maybe a closer al- uh, analogy, but again, it's, it is very different. They're two complete. They're completely different mediums. So, can I ask you one random question about podcasts? Yeah. Think now that you mentioned that you might sometimes be browsing, and you you're like, oh, you read the name of the podcast, you read the description. Okay, that might be interesting. When you go to start a podcast, do you start with the latest episode or do you go back to the beginning? Latest episode, always, always. Yeah, well, not always, but. I mean, it depends on the podcast. If it's something with the order, it doesn't matter. I'll pick something I find interesting at mm. any point in the show. But if it's kind of an 
Uh, actually, now that I'm answering the question, I don't think I can give you a solid answer. Because I, <laughs> I recently listened to, uh, what is it called? Slow Burn. I, I mean, I started from the beginning of that. That's like a serial kind of story. So, of course, you want to start oh, okay. at the beginning. Sure, but, but if the episodes are independent. So to use how, uh, Stuff You Should Know as an example, I listened to the most recent episode first with that one. I was like, oh, what's the vibe of this show? I just clicked the top one on the list. Hello Internet was the same thing. I listened to the most recent episode. So there's a podcast I listen to about synth stuff called Esoteric Modulation. Great podcast. A little bit on the dry side sometimes. But it is <laughs> interesting to listen to. And I listened to, I didn't listen to the first or the last episode. I listened to the episode with a guest that I was interested in hearing just their thoughts and opinions on various things. So, you know, there's an example where I was like, oh, I want to listen to that episode first. So I think it's very dependent on the the, the content of the show. Hmm. What about you? I, I completely agree. I think it totally depends on the content of the show. I am totally guilty of doing that. If, if there are any sort of interview podcast style, I will just scroll until, which is which I don't like. I sometimes try to do oh, the opposite. Really? I, I sometimes will just scroll until I see, oh, like, oh, this person. Like, oh, I wonder what they talked about. Let me listen to that one. Because, yes, I'm listening to something that I know I'll be more likely to enjoy, but I'm branching out less, and that's ultimately something I would want to keep doing. So I usually try to now say, okay, they have people that I maybe am fans of or something like that on this interview show or whatever. Yeah. Why don't I instead trust that if they are getting these kinds of, this caliber of people on there, I'm sure that they are also getting other fairly interesting folks on there. So uh, let me yeah. just read a quick description of one or, or a quick subtitle or something, or, or really anything, any excuse to, to listen to a different one other, yeah. over one that I know I'm familiar with the person. Mm. I'm trying to do that a little bit more because a lot of times I'll end up learning about someone new and maybe that person wrote a book and maybe I go read the book and then in the book I find out about another topic that they reference in another book and then it's a wonderful rabbit hole that I always love doing. Yeah. So I, I do that, but, but I agree that I think with ones that don't have... Uh, like a an arc that you need to follow, and yeah. ones that aren't interview style, I will most likely just start with the latest one. Yeah, and I f- I have the feeling, just putting it out there, that that will sort of be the case with our show. Where people will will just tune in, be like, "Oh, what's this all about?" Check out the latest one. Be like, mm, "Yeah, join the conversation." That was garbage. Yeah. I'm gonna leave. <laughs> so we just have to be aware. You know, we're only as good as our our last episode. We're only as good as our last show in the band. That's a good. That's a great point. You know, you're only as good as your last show, which sucked. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. I am now holding the uh, talking stick. I'm gonna send some rapid fire questions at you. Are you ready? I'm ready. First one: peeled or unpeeled zucchini. Holy shit, I don't think I've ever considered that. <laughs> peeled or unpeeled zucchini? I recently got a peeler, so this is a very prominent question. I guess life. no preference. I would like, does it make a huge difference? I think it does. It's like a peeled or unpeeled cucumber. The skin really does a lot for me, personally. Like you think it adds? Like you keep it so you don't peel it? No, I do peel it. Oh. So I don't what like do you the do? skin. Oh, I think it's a weird slippery texture or something. I was going to ask if you then eat the skin on the side. No, I don't. <laughs> I would say I don't have a preference on that because I don't to me I don't think it makes as big of a difference. Maybe yeah. maybe I just haven't had a zucchini recent enough where I was involved enough in the preparation of it to where I had a say in that. I think if I've had a zucchini recently it was probably in something I did not make myself. <laughs> so I didn't have a say in it in which case I didn't notice. I think an adjacent one for you 
Same question with a kiwi. I uh, peeled, peeled. Okay. The, okay. the skin, the, the skin of the kiwi makes me feel like I'm eating like a bird or something. <laughs> it's weird, I, man. It's weird. So I would probably still say peeled. However, I used to, I used to think when I first heard about this that that's just crazy. Why would, why would you choose to eat it with the skin on? It's like soft fuzz. Yeah, like, it's I don't so understand. weird. But then I was, I was told they were like, try it. And then let me know. And I was like, okay, fine. And so I did it one time and it really was fine. And it was a lot more convenient. I didn't have to peel the damn thing. So, <laughs> you know, if I'm in a pinch, you bet your ass I mean that shit with the skin on. But you just don't think about how it's a small bird or no, a small fuzzy creature. <laughs> no, I guess not. I, but, but that's just because I've tried it. I think if I hadn't, I would still have that feeling. Mm. Okay. Second question. And I don't. I think I don't have to put a clarification on this question when I ask it because I feel like you know you will know what I'm talking about. But I want to preface this question with: I want you to think about pure entertainment value. Okay. All right. Prequel or sequel trilogy? Ah, shit. How entertaining they were. How entertaining they were, and I think that this is an interesting <sighs> question because th- <laughs> it transcends. A more academic perspective, I think, and it's kind of goes back to what we were talking about last episode in terms of entertainment and like functional mm, kind mm-hmm. of value of watching a movie. Uh, so. I, I don't think I can answer that very objectively because I think so much of the entertainment factor for the sequel trilogy stemmed from like the nostalgia that I like generated from watching the sequels and the original trilogy as a kid. Mm. And so I, I don't really know that I can compare them like that because the sequel trilogy, while I enjoyed it because it, it's purely because it was star Wars, not because they were necessarily excellent movies like yeah. plot wise or something. Yeah. Solely because they were set in the star Wars universe is why I enjoyed them. Mm. And I think, you know, I'm one of those people that Disney can make Star Wars movies until the cows come home, and I will probably watch every single one of them feeling giddy because, yeah. like, it just evokes a certain feeling. I mean, like, seeing, like, feeling like the goosebumps from that music or, you know, seeing certain ships or whatever, or like the, the sound of a lightsaber. To me, it's just like evoking just such a, like, giddy feeling from my childhood that, uh, I'll, you know, was contributed to significantly by the prequel trilogy. And I remember having gone to see like Attack of the Clones many times while it was in theaters when it mm. came out. I remember being like opening night. We like were ready to go. We bought our tickets so early in advance for uh, Revenge of the Sith. So I, I don't know. I think the, I think the sequel trilogy was probably better made cinematically, visually and effects wise. I think many people would agree. I think the plot, I would actually kind of give to the prequel trilogy. Because I mean, it, it has more of a plot. It has more argue. of a plot. <laughs> it has much more of an arc. Because it's yeah. like, oh, man. You think about, like, putting aside the ridiculousness of so much of those movies, you think about just how awesome the arc of Palpatine controlling everything for so long yeah. from the beginning and having such yeah. an overarching plan, pulling all the strings in a galaxy to make that storyline a thing. That's awesome. What a cool story. Yeah. Maybe the yeah. execution of the prequel trilogy 
was not how it should have been done, but at least like foundationally the, the story arc for that, I think that's still cool. Still stands yeah. out. Yeah. As going back to it as an adult, I was like, Oh wait, this actually the plot. I, now I understand it. Um, first, firstly, cause I didn't get the plot at all when I was a kid. I was like, what is, what is going on in this movie? Like who is this person for public trade deals? What? Yeah. What is a treaty? What's uh, politics? I don't know. Ugh. But now, as an adult, going back and watching and being like, oh, I see what this movie's about. <laughs> I right. gain a newfound appreciation for it. And I think that combined with like the pure campiness of it makes it almost more entertaining for me to watch. Like The yeah. sequel trilogy is just explosions and crazy fight scenes. And like that's cool, I guess. But what I value in a movie, like the movies I loved when I was a kid were not those types of action movies. They were like silly campy movies like back to the future was one of my favorite movies Mm -hmm. when i was a kid uh monty python Mm -hmm. and the quest for the holy grail one of my favorite movies when i was a kid i mean those movies at least monty python in my opinion objectively is better than star wars in many or the prequel Mm -hmm. trilogy in many ways but i think the prequel trilogies offer me that same sort of like entertainment and like giddiness when i'm watching them that what i get from you know some of my other favorite movies yeah i think going back having i haven't Okay, I watched Phantom Menace probably eight months ago, actually. Yeah. yeah. Um, trying to introduce my girlfriend to the to the series, starting from the yeah. beginning. I don't know if that's controversial or not to start from the episode one, but I I, I think maybe before that it's probably been like three years since I watched a, a prequel movie. I think I watched Revenge of the Sith maybe three or so years ago, and I haven't seen Attack of the Clones in a very long time. Yeah. So. I don't know. The thing is, when I when I went back to watch those other the the one and three most recently, I did feel like especially three. The dialogue is so cringy in so many places. <laughs> so so cringy, so cringy. Like, oh my god, it's brutal. But plot wise, it's still fine. Like, I st- I still think that holds up at least. And so, yeah, I don't know. It's weird because it's like I'm I'm not gonna go back and really watch the the prequel trilogy. I might go back and watch the sequel trilogy, maybe. Um, I would almost be more likely to watch like the the Star Wars story movies, like Rogue One and Solo again. Mm, yeah, me too. Me too. I would watch Rogue One before I watch any of the other sequel trilogy movies. <laughs> yeah, probably. I'd probably agree with you. So I would say if I had to pick, if I had to pick, I'd probably say the prequel trilogy, just because it was just as instrumental as the original trilogy in making me a fan of Star Wars. Yeah, and that the sequel trilogy is primarily just banking on nostalgia for me which still mm-hmm. made it very successful in my in my mind for like making me feel all the things <laughs> but yeah but yeah i would i would say that what about you i would say the same i mean kind of i explained earlier like the prequel trilogy i would pick that one just because it has more it it hits me in a more satisfying way uh as a movie watcher than the sequel trilogy is i get bored with the sequel movies like i saw them in theaters and it was oh so amazing but i would like returning to them, I get the the diminishing returns of enjoyment on watching those movies over and over again is significantly significant. <laughs> it's it's well, yeah. pretty noticeable for me, at least. When I watched them all a second time, I was like, yeah, okay. Well, I, the thing is, I saw each of them multiple times in theaters, and yeah. I think they were exciting in theaters every time for me, at least. Yeah. But I haven't dared to watch a single one outside of theaters yet. I saw Rogue One like four times in the theaters, and it was better as my repeated watches went on. Mm. So to me, that says a lot about a movie. It's like how much I enjoy it after continuing to watch it. With the sequel, sorry, with the prequel trilogy, 
as I watch them more and more, I like start to enjoy them more because I like, I'm like noticing all the like, oh, that's ridiculous. Like all these like lines. I'm like, oh wait, that's a bad line. <laughs> and it's funny. And like, to me, that's like, I've put a lot of value on that uh, experience when I'm watching a movie. So hmm. I would pick the prequel trilogies. Trilogy, the pre- prequel trilogy, not trilogies. There's only one of them. Is that all you got? Oh God, I'm trying to think. Let me think. You got one more. I got one more. I got one more. Okay. Oh, I should have prepared more for this. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good one. And it's also the second time we've discussed Star Wars. Really? In a podcast. Yeah, we discussed pod, We discussed Star Wars in the last podcast too. What was Last episode too. Oh yeah. We, we talked about George Lucas. We talked about George Lucas for a while. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I oh, okay, was actually okay. going to put George Lucas in the white guys lineup. But just just to kind <laughs> of like tie funny. back to last episode. But the thing is, he didn't have the hair. I was no, trying to like doesn't. I was trying to I was going to get a young picture of him because he looks so different than what he looks like now. You wouldn't have yeah. recognized him. Yeah. So I was going to trip you up, but uh, he was just he was he had black hair. It just he has black hair. Yeah. All right, I've got one quick one. Oh, okay. And one quick one. I've just I rem- forgot it, and now I remembered it. It's going to be quick. I just want one word answer. Oh. And maybe we can discuss oh. for next time. I'll do my best. All right. Inception or The Dark Knight? You okay? No. 